0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards, thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. Thank you very much also for the many comments I've had for the uh, interview uh, which went out at the end of last week with Rob Burley, the former BBC editor. He now edits uh, Beth Rigby's interview programme, where we explored the art of the political interview and the state of the BBC in relation to political coverage and much more. uh, Stimulated a lot of uh, responses from you. And as ever today, Uh, in our time together, we've got a heck of a lot to uh, cram in. Uh, If it's okay with you, I'm going to reflect on the state of the Tory party triggered by something which I hadn't quite clocked until it happened, when uh, at some point in the last few days I read that the current Tory government including the coalition, has ruled for longer than the whole of the New Labour era. It passed with the anniversary of Cameron coming to power in 2010. And yet, look at the state that they are in now. There are echoes, in a way, with the state that they were in, in the build-up to 1997, Uh, with that weekend conference of Tory rebels, Uh, with fascinating echoes with all kinds of different things, which I'll reflect on uh, very shortly. Then we'll go to your emails with a rich array of themes being explored. Um, And yeah, during that time, you will have baked bread, drank whiskey, ran 10K, 5K, whatever. Uh, But this is mixing profit with pleasure in the uh, only most fruitful way you can. So yeah, the state of the Tory party, it it strikes me with echoes of uh, 1997. And by the way, some of you emailed about Keir Starmer's speech to uh, the Progressive Britain conference at the weekend, and assumed I'd be analysing that. I could analyse that at length, Um, but there are some questions about it, so we will cover it. Um, But yeah, So, the Tories have been in power longer this time than the whole of the new Labour era, having, of course, been in power after 1979 for 18 years. Then, in 1997, they were slaughtered. Now, what normally happens after a party is slaughtered is that one way or another, there is an intense uh, but interesting and vital and vibrant debate about why a party lost and what has to happen next. How does a party change in response to calamitous electoral defeats? What's really interesting about the Conservative Party is that that really didn't happen after 1997, uh, for reasons I'll go into in a moment. And it is astonishing in a way, that they've managed through a, a range of different reasons to rule for so long and so continuously. Now, I know I say this many times in this podcast, it doesn't take much for, the, for England to vote Conservative. And yet, there was a sense in that post-97 era of a party in deep crisis. Indeed, a book was written about it by Geoffrey Wheatcroft, uh, a writer and journalist, called the strange death of the Conservative Party. Uh, And within about 18 months, the Conservative Party were back in power and have been ever since. Um, But the lack of a really intense, serious post-mortem, which causes big problems for a party because you get uh, reports of civil war and all the rest of it, has led to a situation where, in some respects, we are back to that kind of mid-90s period, where it's easy to forget the intensity of the divisions within the Conservative Parliamentary Party over the Maastricht Treaty, over John Major's leadership, many Tory MPs, some publicly in the House of Commons during Prime Minister's questions, calling for Major to go. And when you think of Major now and his reputation, he is about 500 times weightier, more thoughtful, and a better position for a modern Tory party than the four prime ministers they've had since 2010. Um, but that conference at the weekend was fascinating. It was organised by uh, Lord Cruddus, who is a great admirer of Boris Johnson's, and they all gathered in Bournemouth, these Tories, former Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, senior figure whatever you think about it, a senior figure, the inevitable Jacob Rees-Mogg, the inevitable Nadine Doris, they were all in the cabinet very, very recently. All there explicitly or implicitly condemning uh, the direction Sunak has taken, and either implicitly or explicitly uh, paying homage to Boris Johnson. And also, in some respects, although she isn't named in quite the same uh, feverish way, the, the sort of Liz Truss's approach to the economy, too. And the premise of that meeting was so fascinating. It was about the need for Tory party members, the activists, to have more say in the development of uh, party policy making um, and who should be leader. This is fascinating for many reasons. One, of course, uh, it's an echo of what happened to the Labour Party in the late 70s, but more precisely in the early 80s, when Tony Benn led uh, the campaign for party members to have a greater say in the development of policy, the selection of MPs and leaders. Um, And, I mean, Ben was in a different league to these uh, lightweights in Bournemouth. Um, But there are echoes. He used to say um, that Uh, The the party leadership and MPs should be held to account by the party membership. Um, And uh, this was the essence, really, of his uh, crusading campaign in the 1981 deputy leadership campaign against Dennis Healy, which he almost won. Uh, and it's it's fascinating the degree to which the Tory party has been gripped by Benite themes, when at the time they portrayed him as the great sort of Stalinist threat to Britain. But there's another twist. When Ben was making the case, uh, it was only Labour MPs who elected a leader, Uh, that uh, changed uh, for the 83 leadership contest where Neil Kinnock won. But in 1980, when Michael Foote became Labour leader, he was elected solely by MPs. So he was speaking from a context, uh, you can still disagree with him, but a context where uh, the party membership really did have limited influence, certainly over electing a leader. This lot gathering in Bournemouth for this insurrectionary conference, um, they've elected leader after leader and uh, look what's happened. This lot had the power to elect Johnson and then they had the power to elect Liz Truss and in a way they had power without responsibility because the chaos that has erupted around both Johnson and Truss they seem to be sort of largely oblivious to, now really calling for a revival of the trust agenda um, and also uh, wanting Johnson to return to number 10, in spite of the continuing chaos, which incidentally I will be exploring with Sir Anthony Seldon, uh, who's written this book on Boris Johnson in a podcast soon. Um, and, and so actually the party activists do have quite a lot of power, When exerted, it's usually been disastrous for the Tory party, but there they are putting a case for an even greater leap to the right. And remember, another twist in all this is Rishi Sunak is absolutely rooted on the right of his party. He might have an expedient streak within that right-wing soul, Um, But he is a self-declared Thatcherite, a fiscal conservative, and willing also to press all the right-wing populist buttons about the boats. Uh, He is, of course, a Brexiteer. Uh, He was before Johnson. Um, And yet this figure is way too left-wing for Rees-Mogg, Patel, and those that gathered um, to pay worship to Johnson, and to some extent those who spoke at the party conference how has this party uh, got to a position where there are echoes again with the tensions and divisions uh, in the build-up to 97 and uh, echoes to some extent with the uh, labor kind of civil war that followed the 79 defeat for them and the rise of margaret thatcher and part of the answer is that they didn't have a grown-up debate as to why they lost so heavily in 1997. And if they had, uh, they would be in a wholly different position now. Uh, This is roughly what happened in that sort of period. Um, So in 97, William Hague followed. And William Hague began with an intention to reform, although he wasn't wholly clear what form it would take. His first party conference speech, uh, the phrase repeated again and again was, it was time to move on implying it was time to move on from the assumptions and orthodoxies of the 1980s. But as he himself has reflected since, by the end of his period in rule, so torrid was it, um, that he he did a core vote strategy in the 2001 election in which they were slaughtered again. It didn't work. Um, tax cuts, he announced a tax cut guarantee which could only have been paid for by deep spending cuts. Now here is another important lesson for the Tory party which they show no signs of learning. There was a clever response to the early New Labour period in power from 97, which would have been to say, oh, well, we've been in power 18 years, we've just lost, and here's a government more or less implementing our planned economic policy. They are sticking to our spending plans. They are, which incidentally, we had no intention of sticking to because they were eye-wateringly tight, as Kenneth Clark said, the outgoing Chancellor. Um, they are sticking to our income tax uh, model. They are sticking to the privatisations envisaged by Thatcher and and Nigel Lawson. Uh, If anything, we would spend a bit more. Um, But yeah, uh, while they are enacting Tory policies, we will support them. Over time, and very quickly actually, I think this would have led to a deep unease within the Labour Party about what uh, was happening in some respects, having waited 18 years to rule again. Um, But instead, what happened was that William Hague, uh, Oliver Letwin, Francis Moore and others described uh, Labour spending plans, which, remember, were to stick to the Tory spending plans, as reckless and irresponsible, uh, implying they were going to cut deeply. And this was a dream for Blair and Brown, because what they did was, an interesting sequence. In 97, they didn't dare pledge many public spending increases uh, because of the way the tax and spend debate is conducted by the British media. It's, it's, It's portrayed as a threat to say you're going to invest in the NHS in any significant way, say. But by 2001, because the Tories had condemned Labour's very tight spending plans as utterly irresponsible and reckless, they could then frame a debate in 2001 about the threat of Tory spending cuts. And voters, though they are wary of proposed spending increases, are equally wary, if not more so, of possible spending cuts once they've been made. And so the Tories fell into every trap, and it looks as if they're going to do it, Again, that if Keir Starmer is elected, uh, his speech at the weekend confirmed he is almost imitating New Labour in his march to power, which means he will be as constrained as New Labour when in power, with some important exceptions, but broadly. And the way the Tory party, if they were sensible, would be to say, oh, well, we've got another, uh, we've been in power for all these years, and here comes old uh, Tory Keir Starmer doing Tory policies. Um, And we will become a one nation Tory party more committed to public services than this lot. It looks as if they're going to follow the 97 pattern of going further to the right. Uh, The last leadership contest, Sunak versus Trust. Uh, was a battle absolutely on the right of politics, way removed, say, from a leadership contest uh, in the Christian Democrat Party of um, in Germany, say. Um, so Ilse uh, Kirstama will come in. Rachel Reeves will be prudent, Gordon Brown style. Um, But the Tories will accuse her of being uh, utterly reckless with public spending and demand far greater tax cuts. And so in the next election, they will be able to go and say, look, you you know, you might be impatient with us. But if you get that lot back in, they're going to cut the small amount of spending we have done and public services will be even worse. And that provides the space for Labour to win again. And the Tories continued to have a very narrow debate. Ian Duncan Smith followed William Hague um, and continued in that direction. He was removed. Michael Howard came in and basically paid homage in a very professional way to Thatcherism. And then there was the supposed great reformer of uh, David Cameron, who came in in 2005. But as we've discussed in this podcast before, It was artifice. Um, It was basically a project to revive Thatcherism through a different language, through uh, more amenable symbols, to talk about going green without really meaning it in any substantial way. Uh, It fooled a lot of the media, but it wasn't a grown-up reforming program. Compare it, say, to Neil Kinnock, who inherited a mess and a landslide defeat in 1983, And he had to make substantial changes in policy to the Labour Party and had to change his own ideas as well in response to these crushing defeats. Um, Cameron didn't really have to do any of that beyond a bit of a shift from him on uh, sort of social liberal issues, Um, but on Europe, on public spending cuts on a smaller state, um, he was unchanged and triumphed. Uh, And the Liberal Democrats danced to his dance, or at least the Nick Clegg wing did uh, willingly and happily. And so it was interesting. In 2010, I think if the Tories had had a really serious grown-up debate about how, to quote William Hague, they would move on from the 80s and 90s uh, to a new kind of set of assumptions and policies, I would argue a return to sort of one-nation conservatism last represented by people like Ted Heath and to an extent continued in government with Douglas Hurd and Ken Clarke and others. I think they could have won a majority in two thousand and ten, but voters, in spite of it, even when the Tories get a soft media coverage and the you know the anti the, the sort of non-Tory commentators, some of them adored Cameron. I remember my colleague John Rental, so excited at the prospect of Cameron beating Gordon Brown, um, and he would say he's not a Tory. Um, and yet the voters didn't give them an overall majority in spite of the crash of 2008. Once again, no analysis within the party as to why that didn't happen, um, even though it was really propitious circumstances uh, for a Tory big election win. But in a way, I say it didn't matter. That's the first clue as to the long-serving period Uh Uh, Dick Clegg and others facilitated a radical Tory government, um, even though the Tories didn't have an overall majority. And then Cameron just managed an overall majority uh, at the next election in 2015, but it was tiny. Um, And again, it's interesting. given His opponent was Ed Miliband, who had been utterly slaughtered by the newspapers, had a very tough time at the hands of the BBC, Uh, But the Tories could only just win an overall majority. Then Theresa May had another go to get a bigger majority in 2017 and failed altogether. That's the election that's been airbrushed out of history because it didn't go the way the commentators had expected. And uh, there was no overall majority for the Tories. Then, of course, we got the 2019 election, which was essentially around Brexit. One of the two things... Cameron did accidentally was to cement this period of Tory rule. One was the referendum in Scotland in 2014, Uh, not the holding of it but his response to it, where the day after the referendum he announced changes to the way the Westminster Parliament would uh, be legislating on English matters, Um, and in Scotland they detected something pretty dodgy at Westminster. Huge boost for the SNP and it was one of the many factors that meant Labour was slaughtered in Scotland. And of course the Brexit referendum. It uh, was impossible for Labour to handle. uh, Many of its voters backing Brexit in the north of England and the Midlands and Wales and its party membership and its metropolitan supporters passionately in favour of Remain. And that gave Johnson to form this flimsy but fleetingly strong coalition in December 2019 of uh, Labour Brexiteer supporters who felt betrayed and the, the Brexit support from the Tories, you know, in the south of England and so on. And they finally got that big majority, which they hadn't secured on a scale like it since 1987. But note the patents. They were erratic and lacked any deep thought about what Theresa May said during that first period in opposition after the 97 Labour landslide. They see us as the nasty party. Now, she didn't say we were the nasty party, which would have been a trigger for deeper retrospection, possibly. But even recognising the perception um, was interesting, but not really followed through. It was by her and Nick Timothy, her advisor, he said in an interview for this podcast, he was trying to get the Tories towards a more Christian Democrat approach to certainly the role of the state during his brief period in number 10. Uh, But he was one of the victims of the 2017 election. And therefore, uh, well, I say that's all been airbrushed out of history. So um, yeah, uh, and now we are back where we were um, in the build-up to '97. It was astonishing the willingness of Tory MPs to come into the BBC offices in Four Millbank and slag off their party. And frankly, I think they had concluded, many of them, that um, they were going to lose the election, and they really didn't mind. They'd been in power for so long. They began their debate over Europe um, in the period when they were still in government in the run up to the election. And afterwards, the nearest they came to being challenged was Cameron saying, let us not bang on about Europe quite so much, which is nothing. I mean, you know, compare that to Kinnock's battles over every policy area you can imagine stop banging on about it and words, don't change your views but just keep them quiet for a bit um it, it so they've not really had a grown-up debate and the the only way they will get it is if the if they do lose uh still an if the next election there is a debate in which there is a weighty figure uh, on that tiny one nation wing i mean johnson purged a lot of them uh, but if there isn't and it's another debate on the far right between you know Kemi Badenoch who's been overrated I think massively uh, as a leaderly figure um, oh God, the heartsick sick Suela Braverman um, and who knows who else might um, stand if it's another dance like the Sunak Trust leadership contest Um, that will be such a gift to this Keir Starmer Labour government, if there is one, Uh, because, say, he is saying enough, I think, to constrain them considerably as to what they can do. But if they are being condemned by an even more right-wing Tory party, they will be able to say to voters, well, you you might be finding us uh, too slow and you might still be frustrated by public services... And those of you who want a close relationship with Europe, you might be frustrated by how slow we're going. And by the way, isn't it always the case that Labour governments feel almost obliged to promote the fact that they'll go slowly when you have that Cameron government in 2010 with no majority moving at the speed of sound to implement uh, turbocharged Thatcherism in public services in terms of the economy and public spending? But there we go. Um, uh, It could be tricky for Keir Starmer, but not if the Tories uh, have another uh, shallow debate aimed at these activists. But because these activists have a lot of power already, that's presumably where the debate will go. Anyway, there we are. This is a podcast to commemorate the fact that the Tories, even through that erratic passage, have now ruled longer Since twenty ten, the new Labour managed after nineteen ninety seven. And here now we have a very neat segue. Uh, Caroline Morgan uh, writes that, um, yeah, we've uh, mentioned on this podcast in the past about how uh, now we're kind of in that pre-election period, you watch the newspapers turn on uh, Keir Starmer and how he has to deal with that. And it's not easy, but they will. uh, The Sun, which, of course, was very nice to Tony Blair, The Telegraph, The Times, I suspect even the Sunday Times, I'm not so sure about that. But certainly the times will turn. Anyway, uh, yeah, she, she says that uh, he needs our services on the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative and Sue Gray uh, to uh, advise him has, how to deal with the onslaught. Yeah, you can't get enough advice about that because that it is tough. I mean, when you are, he he he's, he's experienced it, you know, that ridiculous Durham gate fiasco where newspapers tried to claim it was, this, you know, equal to Johnson's endless party gate in number 10. Um, and then the BBC felt, oh, we, the mail's done it for eight days. We better get someone in. And so they set the agenda. It's going to happen a lot. Um uh, so caroline says uh yeah um but she 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 wants that change she's experience taught us that although tony blair wasn't perfect he s- seemed like a savior in 1987 who knows keir starmer may pull off the same trick with a bit of help from the rock and roll politics cooperative yeah well i'm sure keir not only listens to the podcast but takes notes uh caroline and um yeah with the these attacks what's interesting is whether if Labour maintain this high poll lead um another if um the papers dare to really go for him they might uh, they might think oh what about if some of this poll lead is so big some of our readers have switched um but that doesn't seem to bother the likes of uh Paul Dacre and the Sun and the editor of the Times um yeah anyway let's see Uh, Connor Jones uh, writes about Keir Starmer's speech on uh, Saturday. Uh, This was at the Progressive Britain conference. There were elements of it which were quite interesting, but I was um, uh, worried by the number of echoes to the Blair technique from nineteen. 94 to 97 uh you know he he talked about cl- clause four on steroids of uh, he seeks a, a new labor new britain um he condemned the conservatives for not conserving and being conservative enough um it was Labour's role these were all tricks from the 94 to 97 period and overt echoes and i did tweet um this is a unique political project in choosing to imitate a previous one. I can't remember anything like it. But Conor Jones writes, um, uh, on the positive side, he feels that the criticism of Conservatives betraying their own values is smart and will be useful in winning over Tory voters. Um, Also, Starmer's assessment of what a Labour government has to do and the scale of that challenge shows some wisdom. Yeah, and it's interesting that he also raised themes which I think will echo, um, such as the need for voters to feel secure security is a potent word like freedom as we've discussed here on this podcast um however Co- connor also ag- agrees with my concerns about it much of the speech felt overtly reliant on new labor buzzwords and looking back to the past do you think that is something caused by his speech writing team being uh, too nostalgic or overly eager to please an audience of blairites um some of the phrases lacked a bit of tact. For example, if that sounds conservative, then let me tell you I don't care. Yeah, this again, you know, is a kind of Blair thing. You know, you might not like it, but I can tell you this. The other option is the Tory party. and You won't like that even more. You know, there's a sort of um, – and – Yeah, I don't know who wrote the speech, but he's got a lot of people who used to work for Tony Blair in his office um, who continue to revere Uh, Tony Blair, who um, have been involved. When you've been involved in an election-winning project, it's very hard to see what's in front of your eyes decades later, Um, a very different set of challenges. There are lessons to be learned from... uh, Labour's wins. Um, but to overtly lift with such unsubtle echoes, uh, I think is a, a concern rather than a welcome. I mean it's obviously, you know, those who see everything still through a prism of Tony Blair will say, oh yeah, wow, he this is this is Blair. But, I mean, Blair's 70 now and still very articulate and reflective and all the rest of it. But this is so different. And, and what's Keir Starmer's take now? What's his view as someone who's had a very different background to Blair and Brown? Their background was the Labour politics of the 1980s. His was, you know, quite... a interesting career in the law and then rising to be dpp and then shortly in politics with a view surely of what's wrong with britain and how you change it of course that has to be mediated to maximize support but does it have to be these endless references to the new labor period i don't think so i think it is counterproductive in the end um anyway thank you for that uh paul Stanya. yeah he's one of those who uh reflects on the interview with rob burley rob's got a book out at the moment on political interviews he was editor of the marsh show amongst many other things um and paul says i was weaned on weekend world in the 70s and have always been a fan of brian walden i also do a good impersonation of him oh You need to come to the stage show, Paul, and get up onto the stage and do your Brian Warden. Um, I wish his interviews could be recovered and uploaded to YouTube one where he interviewed uh, sir keith joseph on education is available i'll have a look at that uh yeah rob and i talked a lot about warden warden's great skill as an interviewer they weren't perfect interviews they were over prepared uh, and followed a particular line irrespective of the answers of the politicians but warden having been a politician was empathic to the dilemmas and the problems. Uh, You know, uh, too empathic to Thatcher. He adored Thatcher, even though he had been a Labour MP. But I mentioned to Rob, what I still remember to this very day, and I can't find it anywhere, he interviewed Tony Benn during the 81 deputy leadership campaign. And everything Benn stood for, Walton would have been against. But he uh, clearly admired Benn, as someone who thought deeply about politics, who could frame an argument. And although they were, you know, within the Labour Party on opposite sides, it was a fascinating, brilliant interview. When you compare it, I don't know, it's unfair to mention some of today's interviewers, but I mean, he was in that sense in a different uh, league. So, yeah, let's trace these down. um As you say, uh, Paul, it would be great. Uh, they must exist somewhere. Um, and he suggests a possible future podcast on Patreon could look at the disconnect between party activists and normal voters. And he mentions the pretty Patel line from that weekend conference in Bournemouth, uh, apparently about to make a speech. He's made it now, blaming the local election results on party leaders not listening to activists. Yeah, isn't it? It is it is really interesting this. And I say the echoes uh with Labour in the early 80s and Tony Benn um are. They're not precise because Ben was in a different league, um, but there are parallels. Uh, yeah, thank you, Paul. I, I I agree, and 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 Rob said he was hugely influenced by Warden's interview with Margaret Thatcher after Nigel Lawson resigned in the late nineteen eighties. It was, uh, it was an epic. Okay, now over to Callum Esler. Uh, Callum says I'm a student currently writing on fiction about the Scottish Independence referendum. Oh, that would be there's there's meat for a novel in all of that Callum my mum got me into your podcast about a year ago and it's now one of my absolute favorites I'll oh, thank you very much I was thinking about your reflections on the term freedom over the coronation weekend particularly your point about how no one would ever say they were against freedom While I would tend to agree with you, I found it interesting seeing how many people supported their freedom being taken away in the name of Charles as the Met and other police forces across the UK cracked down on protest. I saw numerous Vox Pops, social media posts, and pundits' comments, which gleefully applauded the various reductions in freedom we and the rest of the world bore witness to. Do you think that there is a twisted logic which could see ordinary people actually speaking against freedom? Yes, yeah, a brilliant point, Callum. And, of course, when you put it like that, uh, the answer is is, yes, on the whole, you know, and this is why Starmer was so evasive about it. um, If they're asked, you know, do they want these protesters locked up or whatever, who dare to disturb this weekend where they all plan to uh, hail the king and the coronation, and, you know, many of them more excited about that than, say, changing their lives through voting in a local election, Um, you're right. But if it is framed around the issue of freedom, I have more hope that they would see things differently. Framing really does affect the way voters see politics. Um, And if, say, Starmer, like Biden, had tried to have an overall argument about his vision for Britain with the word freedom, you then have the space to develop the case for the state as Biden is doing, freeing people to uh, study, freeing people to uh, have fewer worries about their health being ignored by a terrible health service, and then the freedom, the right to protest um, not the right to wreck a coronation but the right to protest um, so i think there are ways and then you and i still think if you you know the bbc did one of its rubbish vox pops in basildon or where the you know, marginal seats you won't get people saying now i'm against freedom you know but of course you're right Kaneman. is it isn't a nuanced thing that if you ask them do you think the protesters should be locked up or whatever who uh protested against the coronation uh, you would get them all saying yeah yeah lock them up throw away the key um but i think that is the advantage of framing a big argument around freedom it creates more space uh because freedom those who advance the case for freedom win elections thatcher in 79 Attlee in 45 uh, it will help biden whatever trouble he's in in america Uh, seizing it from the republicans uh thank you callum good luck with the book um or the fiction on the drama of the referendum Uh, Anthony Wilson, enjoying the podcast as ever as I drive around Devon and Somerset on visits to support my brilliant student teachers. Uh, I wondered if you've seen uh, Will Lambert's review in the New Statesman of Ian Dunt's new book. Uh, Yeah, I I have actually, Anthony. uh, The book's about um, the failures in Westminster. Uh, Anyway, he uses two of the cooperative's favourite words, scrutiny and consequences, as a lens with which to examine Westminster's failure to produce policy that enhances our public realm. Uh, Yeah, although I have doubts about this, Anthony, in this sense. um, If voters vote to give one party uh, wholly unfit for government, as the Tories were in December 2019... A huge overall majority. That's not the responsibility of a breakdown at Westminster. The voters chose that. um, And there will be consequences for voters. Now, that doesn't mean Westminster should not be reformed. And some of the changes that have taken place have been highly effective more power for committees, greater resources for committee chairs, who I think are now paid. They used not to be paid. But if uh, one party gets a big overall majority, they're going to be able to get things through uh, come what may. And that's certainly what's happened since uh, December 2019. Um, the Reverend Canon Paul R. Buthnott from uh, Dublin, one of our regular contributors on the uh, ongoing dramas in the politics of Northern Ireland. Um, and Paul says, oh, he enjoyed the Patreon Zoom meeting. Thank you, Paul. i I I, I clocked that you were on so I looked at the end who was on and all the questions and things and say next time hopefully we'll have a bit more space for a wider uh, discussion when we do that and to join in Please subscribe to uh, Patreon. Uh, in the last podcast, Sporax, I heard the leadership of Michelle O'Neill being lauded as a result of her attendance at the coronation of the king. I found a comparison of uh, this to the leadership of the DUP to be a rather specious analysis of Northern Irish politics. I think that was our correspondent in France, Dominique Paul, who you've had disagreements with in the past over the uh, DUP. Anyway, Paul writes, what would mark real leadership from Michelle O'Neill would be if the Sinn Féin MPs were to take their seats at Westminster and represent their constituents fully there. After all, if you can manage to attend a coronation, your MPs can surely manage to sit in Parliament. To compare this, uh, whatever the DUP leadership is doing right now, is odd, because the DUP is dealing with a completely different set of issues right now. I still maintain that they will come back into a storm of government and that it will be a good thing when they do. Well, there we are, Paul. Thank you uh, very much for that. I know you are a close watcher of the uh, DUP. And yeah, I know you weren't able to make it, Paul, but when I did the show in Belfast, I asked the audience to predict whether the Northern Ireland Assembly would be up and running within a year. And by a big majority, they predicted that it would be. Um, But as those of you who come to the live shows know, these predictions are notoriously unreliable. Now, uh, Laundry Joe has written in, uh, so-called because he does his laundry while listening to the podcast, and he has got an answer for the insane number of times. From now on, Keir Starmer will be asked about what he will do if there is a hung parliament. Uh, now, this is insane because really, leaders only know precisely what to do when they get the results in, uh, because it partly depends on the Figures in the hung parliament you know the number of seats each party have got depends on all kinds of things that you don't know in advance and anyway in advance you're not going to make big explicit commitments about relationships with other parties um you're going to make a pitch to get an overall majority um But, so I think the questioning is lazy. Uh, But he, Laundry Joe, thinks the questioning is valid. And this is how he thinks Starmer should deal with it. So this is Paul's dialogue. He chooses Martha Carney from the Today programme. Martha Carney. Sir Keir, that's my impression of Martha Carney. If the local election results are replicated, you will find yourself the largest party in a hung parliament. Will you enter into a coalition with the Liberal Democrats? Yes or no? Keir Starmer. It's a fair question. This is Keir Starmer. I don't think it is a fair question, but let's get on with it. Keir Starmer, it's a fair question, and you're going to get a direct answer from me. You won't see me hiding behind that cliched line that I won't answer hypotheticals. Incidentally, I hope you're planning to ask the Conservatives if they'll ever re-enter a coalition with the DUP who are holding up power sharing in Northern Ireland. Obviously, we're fighting for a majority and we're on track for a majority. We're seeing a massive realignment. The people are tired, tired of 12 years of misrule. Uh, then, uh, a bit too long, Joe, he gives some other things he uh, says uh, before moving to the uh, key element. If the Liberal Democrats are prepared to embody the good sense of Joe Grimmond, the social justice of Charles Kennedy, financial responsibility of Vince Cable, we will enter into open discussions. However, I will say this, we will never enter coalition on any form of an agreement that seeks any referendums or is based on separatism. I won't answer the phone to the SNP or Plaid Cymru. Martha Carney, so what if the Lib Dems make electoral reform the price of a coalition? Keir Starmer, the British people made it abundantly clear that they're not interested in electoral reform in 2011. The Liberal Democrats will find negotiations very short if they seek to impose a further referendum. I'd rather lead a minority party than betray the British people and so further division, etc., um, etc. Et so Laundry Joe says that's the way to deal with it. Well, that certainly answers the question, uh, Joe. Uh, you, you can't accuse him of being evasive. But I think it will land him into a degree of uh, difficulty, frankly, um, uh, by even hinting at the type of negotiation and what he would rule out, electoral reform. Although, as you imply, Joe, I don't think electoral reform will be or can be on his uh, agenda, certainly in advance of an election. I'll give you another reason for that, in a in a moment, but thank you for giving an example of how um, how he might approach that. Um, he kind of equivocated a bit; he just didn't rule out negotiating with the Lib Dems, um, and in interviews after the local elections, while ruling out the SNP. Again, it's it it's a defensive way of doing it. What you should, I mean, what Blair did, um, and I'm not saying he should do that, but he should do something. You need big arguments to deal with these small points. So Blair had said uh, long before he was questioned about deals with the Lib Dems um, that the failure of the 20th century was the failure of progressives to work together. Um, And that let the Tories in. And he worked with Roy Jenkins, who of course then was part of the Liberal Democrat Party uh, very closely, um, although I don't think they were as close uh, in politics as uh, both like to think they were, uh, Roy Jenkins was well to the left of Tony Blair on some key issues, uh, passionately opposed the war in Iraq. It was his last speech in the House of Lords, was his opposition to the war in Iraq. Um, but, but, but that was the context in which Blair formed this rapport with Paddy Ashdown. But I, I, I just don't think you need to go there because you can't really go there. What? Has Labour just missed out on an overall majority? Uh, Has it missed out by quite some margin? Uh, Is it the biggest party just by a few seats? All that will determine what happens. How many seats will the Lib Dems get? What's going to happen to the SNP? It's only afterwards that you know the kind of moves that you might have to make. Uh, Yeah, and on that, we're going to go to Bob uh, Tindall in a moment, but on that, I got a text from a very uh, prominent uh, Labour politician the other day. Uh, who knows that some of us in the rock and roll politics cooperative um, are sort of very gripped by the issue of electoral reform. Um, And uh, this very prominent Labour figure said, uh, without getting into too much into the weeds of electoral reform, the argument made about how it benefits progressive parties has always been the weakest for me, in principle terms, if nothing else. Anyway, the mayoral result in Middlesbrough demonstrates the practical limitations. We only won the majority, that's Labour, because of first past the post, with thanks to the Tories for changing the system this time around. I know this is a big area of interest to your podcast listeners. Yeah, it is interesting. And it is a myth that um, somehow electoral reform benefits uh, across, you know, wherever it's applied, uh, always benefits... uh, parties on the left or centre-left, it's, it's just not the case. Anyway, um, that debate's going to run and run, I know. And um, yeah, it's been really interesting, the dialogue we've all had on this uh, in the programme. But anyway, uh, thank you uh, for that. I hadn't clocked what was happening in Middlesbrough or how it happened. But yeah, of course, it was, the voting system now is first past the post for those elections. Uh, and Labour won there. Uh, and finally, Bob Tyndall, who came to The Brighton Show recently, uh, and he says, some of your reflections on the 1970s. Yes, yeah, somehow in Brighton, we got back to the 70s uh, to make sense of now. You never quite know what's going to happen in these live shows. Um, anyway Bob, at the end of the 60s and into the early 70s I was a Hartlepool Labour Party young socialist Uh, this was an interesting time to be involved as militants suddenly seemed to be very visible and we were encouraged to sell the militant newspaper I always had doubts about those folks having opted out of a Catholic upbringing I wasn't about to swap one type of indoctrination for another we spent quite a bit of time at meetings on Tyneside I can genuinely recognize a lot of our friends from the north from real life by the way i'm told our friends from the north is on the iplayer Uh, one entertaining thing that happened was a meeting we had with tom dryberg he was staggeringly indiscreet and very funny i doubt he could make your troublemaker series on patreon as he lacks prominence but he certainly was larger than life it's interesting to see the stuff about him being a spy too yeah i bob you've got to read francis ween's book on dryberg uh what a what a character um i don't think he fits the troublemakers series we're doing on patreon because he wasn't big enough a figure to cause that much trouble. Of course, he was famously gay um, and sort of used to hang around at public loos and what a kind of weird period that was. Um, We also met, Bob says, Tony Crosslett, who was very polite to us, though he made it clear that nobody believes in Clause 4 these days. Yeah, one of the things about Clause 4 mythologized when Tony Blair scrapped it um, they had been publicly disowned by Harold Wilson, uh, Tony Crossland, you know, who was a radical in other ways. Uh, Bob Wright's Crossland had bright red braces and smoked a large cigar uh today i read that a labor party national executive i'm a member of the labor party is not allowing affiliation to the likes of republic or cnd and other groups without their say so we've come a long way tony crossland would be a radical now he sure would be a radical now um i don't know whether he'd be kicked out um you never know these days but um he would certainly be a radical remains an absolutely fascinating figure crossland Um, And of course, his book, The Future of Socialism, was uh, an important kind of political Bible for some uh, in the crisis of the late 50s, and um, for Labour crisis. And it's, to be honest, I'm going to end where we began. See, Labour, for all its inability to win elections, and all the... uh, deep flaws of each uh, attempt by a leader to change it um, does go in for a degree of introspection, sometimes too much, um, which has grown up and intelligent. And in the late 50s, when they lost yet again, crosston wrote his book on the future of uh, socialism. You know, there were kind of, these were kind of, some people thought crosston was going down the wrong track um and then you had the bennite view and then you had the sort of healy kind of view and then you had the jenkins williams david owen they ended up leaving labor but it was grown-up politics and um they might, <laughs> might not be good at winning but they're quite good at uh post-mortems um which they have to do a lot of and uh, although it's better to win by twenty thousand degrees obviously when a party loses, there needs to be a an deep analysis as to why and say the fact that the Tories haven't done that. What's the equivalent of Crossland's The Future of Socialism? Not that jamboree in Bournemouth at the weekend with Pretty Patel and Jacob Rees-Mogg and others. Um, and if they don't do it, as I say, if they lose this time, I think they could be out for a long time. your favourite history nerds are back you get your podcasts thank you so much for tuning in i uh, hope you've done the 10k 5k cooked bread um, anyway use the time productively um, and yeah let's get together again very soon to make sense of it all thanks so much for tuning in see you soon bye